just saying like this space will encourage us to whisper. Yeah. So we'll have to kind of fight the okay. fight the urge to do what the architecture is telling us and um, use our best indoor voices. Kia ora and welcome to 76 Small Rooms, the podcast about architecture from Aotearoa, New Zealand. I'm Jeremy, I'm here with Arch and Tash, and today we have a very special guest. His name is Kevin O'Brien. He's here from Australia and he's been judging the, the Razine Takahui Whaihanga Student Design Awards. Um, Kevin is also a principal at BVN Architects in Australia, and he's been leading in that role, BVN's Designing with Country strategy, which we're really interested to talk to him about today. But first, Kevin, welcome. Um, I wondered if you'd like to add to my very insubstantial intro by introducing yourself a bit to our listeners. Oh no, I think you did a great job. Uh, <laughs> you got the name right, which is always a good start. Um, yes, I am Australian and um, part of my heritage is uh, Currig and Miriam from far north Queensland at the tip of Australia. So that's on my mother's side and that's sort of informed, I guess, a cultural lens into or onto architecture and hence the designing with country framework that our practice um, sort of practices through. And it just informs us a bit around how to look for, I guess, clues and prompts within uh, the country, the specific country that a project might be located in, in Australia. Mm. It's really interesting this because, um, and we'll unpack this gradually as we talk, but one of the things I'm fascinated by is that you are working at a practice which is working at enormous scale in Australia. And that has, um, from looking at your website and also the projects at least, has fully embraced this designing with country strategy. Often we see these strategies working in from the margins, but does it feel like your experience that they're being embraced in large-scale commercial architectural practice in Australia? Yeah, look, it, the, the way of uh, designing with country, now that it has a name, is something I've always practiced through. Um, it's why, the way I've always seen the world is through that particular lens, uh, in the way most people, all other architects, see the world in the way they were brought up in their culture. So that it's become, um, I guess, a a methodology in its own right is is really exciting um, that my fellow principals uh, at BBN have embraced it um, and it's one of our core tenets of how we practice along with a few other things um, it just means that you know it, it we have something that's authentically authentically of Australia and um, because it's of that place of that country it can mean um, it's possible to draw out something that's, you know, absolutely special about the, the project. Um, give it a, I guess, a cultural dimension, um, give it a historical dimension and sort of reveal something a bit more about what it is to be Australian. Hmm. What is designing with country to you? What's your, um, how do you sum it up when somebody asks you a basic question like that? Yeah. De designing with country is just, uh, in essence, it's looking at one layer of influence on a project that's bound to our history in Australia. And that's the contribution of um, this idea of country. And Australia as a continent is made up of over 300 different Aboriginal countries, each with their own language, their own uh, cultural nuances. And looking into that as a starter for every project just means uh, 
you know, there's, there's things that we might consider useful or relevant in the making of that project or thinking about the project. The other layers we also uh, synthesize, you know, the next one's obviously the colonial history, then our multicultural history post 1960s white Australia policy. Those three things are just part of our, our history and that they would have an effect or an influence on a project is it kind of feels obvious in a way. But equally over, you know, in front of us is always technology is something that, um, you know, it, it, it becomes obsolete the day you put it in because it's on to the next iteration. And then the one in front of us, another layer is the global dimension. So we look at those layers as things that we draw upon in any project and we're looking for, um, I guess, the positive connections we can make that sort of trying to find a, you know, I guess a better future in that sort of way of thinking. Mm. You sound optimistic as you say that, that it's working. Yeah, no, I'm generally optimistic. Um, I think you've got to be, or you've got to be humorous, one of the two, but I think the, there's a lot of things that separate our um, First Nations, colonial and multicultural histories, mm. and they, they separate in a kind of a negative way. And I think if, if you can find things that you can draw upon that, a positive, um, you, know, you can kind of just move, move the goals forward a little mm. and uh, make things better. So Australia is haunted by its past and it still hasn't come to terms with it. And I think as architects, we can maybe just contribute a little bit in that space. I wondered if I could ask you to talk about designing with country in the context of a specific project and if this isn't the right project we can talk about another one but you're working on um, the Atlassian headquarters at the moment which yeah. is going to be one of the world's largest if not the largest hybrid timber structure when it's completed at 44 floors. Can you talk about how the designing with country philosophy has fed into and informed that design? Yeah I think that that's a good example because it's a commercial project. Mm. Um, the Atlassian client, if you like, is um, also interested in these issues and questions about culture and what it means and how can it manifest and influence the architecture. And th there's many ways to do it. And the one, the one way we sort of looked at it was as a matter of um, caring for country. So we've got this little diagram that says designing with countries made up of these three um, sectors, if you like, on the wheel. One's caring for country, which is also to do with sustainability issues. One's to do with palette, which is around looking at materials and colours that are of that place. And the other's settings, which is to do with the spatial consideration. And if we're talking about country, the way you understand country is that you walk in it. So therefore there's a track or a promenade if you're a modernist. There's a, a campsite, which is the informal collecting, gathering type spaces. And then there's a ritual component, which is the, the special, you know, um, formalised um, spatial conditions. So they're the three sort of moves we kind of think through. Sometimes a project can draw on all three, sometimes it's one. Um, occasionally it's none, it just doesn't stick, mm. or a client has no interest in that and um, we don't make that formally recognisable. It's still there in the way I think about these things. The Atlassian project in particular though, um, working with shop architects in New York was, was fantastic because they, they fully embraced this idea of regeneration and there's a lot of alignments between the two ideas. Um, particularly the way you might look at energy as a, as a past, present, future condition. So the site itself in terms of the past, the first move was to heal it. It's been 
you know, concrete, the, the original native landscape has been totally removed. Um, we know we couldn't put it all back in the same way because the footprint's mostly building. But there was this idea that we could, maybe within the scheme, as you go from um, the lower floors all the way to the top, start to have spaces where native landscapes could be presented. And in the sort of inverted pyramid section that's stacked, there's a series of gardens all the way up. So we've roughly worked out that, you know, for the area of the site, we've got about three times the amount of site coverage in native garden. Well, so we're thinking that's a that's the main contribution. The the other two about low embodied energy in terms of the present condition is is plain to see with the CLT embracing that as a construction methodology. And then the third is um, really strong desire. Um, and we work with the engineers around minimising in the future its uh, energy draw. So the the big picture idea of it is that it is um, it's healing its site. It's reducing its effect on country and I guess it's making a contribution on behalf of its neighbours who mm. aren't such good citizens. <laughs> Kevin, I was really interested in um, something you said earlier about uh, this idea of synthesising um, these different streams of country and technology. Is there a risk or how do you combat um, uh, perhaps losing uh, a First Nations um, perspective or voice, you know, that cultural voice within the project if you're looking to synthesise? How is that something that you look to self safeguard? No, not at all. So the, 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 the main idea of designing with country is that um, it's, I mean, it is one way of seeing um, architecture and the site and how you might think about or start, you know, your design investigation. The way we're... Um, rolling it out within the practice is that we're showing people how to think about it but I'm very much up to them leaving it up to them to sort of interpret and you know, do the research into the site where the project is. There's a very clear methodology to do that inform themselves about the site and the history of it and what it belongs to and then see where they go with it and sometimes they check in with me, sometimes they don't and that's good. Um, the other thing is we put these diagrams out to the broader industry as well and with, with the express notion that it's 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 being shared and it's for people to take on board and you know if they like only that if they improve it to let me know so mm. I can make things better as well. Yeah. Um, and that that's that's the really fascinating thing about it because it's it's not something I'm looking at as a piece of IP that belongs to me. It's like uh, you know if I look at all the great architects around the world when they talk about their processes and how they're thinking about things, that's what they're sharing. I'm thinking that that's the best thing we can do with this is share it and let people run with it. And Almost an open source. It's a methodology yeah. that can be constantly improved on and shared. Yeah. Yeah. And then you invite conversation and dialogue as well, you know, yeah. which is, I think, a really powerful thing yes. you know, to bring these issues to the fore, which have been difficult, perhaps, for a lot of people to know how to begin to talk about. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. That, yeah, it's absolutely about that. And that, that's the, I mean, what we're trying to do is a kind of a microcosm of Australia on a broader scale. Because there is this kind of, like I said, there's a haunting about how to confront the past and it just hasn't quite stuck yet. So um, I think, you know, it's a small move and a small contribution to the life of Australia. I think it's a, it's a good one. Mm. You were 
close friends with and also worked with on some of your postgraduate study, the late Rewi Thompson, and Jade and I interviewed you for our book about him. I wondered if during that time you spent with him you saw many commonalities between this approach of designing with country and the Māori design principles that Rewi was grappling with for his architectural career. Um, what kind of conversations did you have and did those two approaches feel like they had things in common? Yeah, well, I think the, the conversation with Rui, which started in the late 90s, mid to late 90s, um, we never talked about things in terms of a methodology, do A, B, C, D. There were just more conceptual ideas about how to locate um, the thinking. And the one conversation that's burned into my memory was uh, one we had in Sydney. It must have been about 2006, I think, 2005, 2006. And it was just trying, trying to understand this concept of uh, time and space and the, the way that we were being taught in our School of Architecture was my undergraduate at UQ uh, was that you could critique a building or experience a building as a matter of time or you could do the same as a matter of space. And those two constructs were quite weird because one was lineal and our concept of time is not lineal. Mm -hmm. from, uh, place and a concept of space is definitely not enclosed and the diagram we came up with was um, uh, it was like a section through uh, an island where my grandmother's from and it was basically going through the water up the side of a island and then came back over even though it looked like a closed line it was basically saying on the inside was um, our uh, was where we lived like physically, and then on the outside of the line was where our ancestors were, and the spaces, you're basically in the cycle of moving between them. So the, the drawing was trying to say that, that time was endless, but not linear, and space was um, not defined by what was inside the line. So it was, um, it was just something that kind of uh, clicked for both of us in the way we're thinking and talking about it, because um, yeah, it was, a, it was a big thing to grapple with because, you know, the, it, in the way that we're taught, it was just the opposite of that. Um, mm. and, and that thing to me helped when I did that postgraduate work and it certainly made it clearer to, to kind of draw out this designing with country methodology because I could see why it was different and why it had a place. It wasn't just a rambling, you know, bitter architect sort of carrying on about things. How does designing with country intersect, if at all, with modernism, which I'm kind of conflating in that question with the international style and this set of architectural principles that its highest profile practitioners believe could be rolled out across the world? Um, do those two things intersect at all, or does the concept of the importance of country and of place supersede modernist teaching in some ways? Look, I think um, they should intersect, and I think in my really basic critique of modernism is that, in my view, it failed because it, it didn't recognise where it was. It didn't recognise place, so the international style sort of assumed you could take that box and put it anywhere around the globe. And then, you know, it was followed by postmodernism that thought it was nature, it could stick it on and it failed and now i think we're at a place where um, 
maybe some of the aesthetic traditions of modernism have resurfaced in a different kind of way, but they're very much being um, brought to ground by um, the cultural dimension or the, the regional dimension of wherever the project's located. And also, they're being forced to perform, which I don't think they were back in the day. <laughs> right? So they've now got to address issues around carbon use and energy draw and the damage they're doing. Um, so I think we're at a place today which is really interesting for that reason. So it's mm. like a version, I don't know, some, I, remember, I remember reading about critical regionalism back in university days, and this feels like it's that, but just amped up a whole other dial somehow. Mm. So it works in tandem also with environmental principles because they're related to place so closely. They, look, they are, I think, um, but ultimately culture is related to place. You know? mm. That's the mm. thing that we all make as people um, of the situation, the place, the country we're in. Where's the meaning located? Um, you know, how do we see the building being an extension of the way we sustain ourselves and the environment? Um, I think those things are all they're the beautiful moments of culture and make the world interesting to be in, right? Mm. So. I'm looking at you, Arch, in case you moved like you had a question. No? Did I move like I had a question? <laughs> um, <clears throat> that's a really fascinating, fascinating introduction to such, I mean, it's such a huge topic too. This, um, to come to methodology, so it sort of is a methodology, it isn't a methodology. I'd love to hear more about how it would find form in a, in a project, a hypothetical or real project. Are you partnering with, you know, the local communities in a kind of co-design process, building by building? That would be what I imagine, yeah? yeah. <clears throat> Where we can, yes. So there'll be all these other participants in the process of, you know, gathering yarns, stories in place. There'll be, you know, potentially quite large groups you might work with. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And it, it depends on the nature of the project and the nature of the benefit back to the community. So, like, the origin of understanding country is the traditional custodians. Mm. So, if that's present, and usually it is present on the projects that have some benefit back to that community, then wonderful things happen. At the other end of the the kinds of projects, like doing a um, a commercial building um, or a commercial development that may not have any benefit for the community, it's hard to see why, or it's it's easy to understand why community wouldn't get involved in it because well would they? It's, mm. it's nothing really there. So in that instance, the things I draw on then is is my desktop research and understanding and my just my viewpoint. So I'm doing a big project in. Canberra at the moment, which is just a straightforward commercial uh, floor plate type building, um, and but there's aspects of it in there. The client wasn't looking, you know, overtly for design with country principles to be present, but there's these really simple little um, um, pop-outs that just frame views of specific ancestral entities in the landscape yep. around camera and that's it. And they they just you know, if I didn't talk about it, it would just be seen as this, you know space that just lets you get outside the building and put you beside this mountain that's just yep. off on the horizon yep. and and that's enough to set up a connection and and the purpose of doing it like that and other projects i've done for the last 20 odd years is that if you can set up something that beautiful in terms of a connection whether it's a view to something you know frame of view for example becomes a beautiful experience within that uh, building and the reason I'm doing that or pursuing that is because the minute you have a beautiful 
space with a beautiful experience, you start to fall in love with it. And when you love something, I think your whole behaviour changes and you, you look after it and you belong to it as mm, opposed mm, to just mm. going, you know, I own it and therefore I can do whatever I want to. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's kind of how I'm thinking about that. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, in some of the reading I did, you know, I've got a quote here about you saying, you know, when you belong to something, you have an understanding that you have responsibilities to other people and that you're responsible for your actions. Mm-hmm. So that sentiment of creating that attachment, that ownership, mm-hmm. that meaning, whatever it happens to be, yeah. you see as um, <clears throat> part of what you're kind of giving occupants and clients and their attachment and giving them some kind of understanding of country. Yes. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And look, and all my other, I mean, all the architects I really admire around the world, um, not just in Australia, they're all, they're all making beautiful things, but they're fundamentally setting up experiences that bind the occupants to it and to the to the building to the building or the space or, yeah or, the or, to, or to the architecture mm-hmm. as a sort of uh, enabler of um, experiences within that context yep you know um, and that's what I think is really wonderful about architecture generally you can make something that's memorable mm. Um, mm. and memories that things you know once you've got those memories and those experiences your life's so much richer I think mm. You've been judging the Razine Takahui Whaihanga Student Design Awards. How has that experience been for you? And what are the projects as a collective saying, do you think, about the next generation of architectural aspiration? So we've looked at today seven of 11 schemes, and it's they're all, what's coming through the work, which is really and, um, peculiar to hear is that each of those seven so far have just had a very clear awareness of um, the temporal nature of things things are changing we have climate change um, in our briefing we got told what to do if there's an earthquake there's a cultural dimension that's happening you know resurgence of um, um, Maori way of seeing things um, and each of those entries just sort of had a a response to it in a way that was just there's a sharpness to it that I thought was really refreshing and really inspiring like I'm just I feel really fired up and ready to go back to Australia and wreak havoc. Great, it's great. It's great. <laughs> wreak more havoc. <laughs> and does it make those problems that you referred to such as climate change and um, not just that but um, inequality and all the other issues that we're dealing with at the moment does it make it seem possible that architecture can be part of the solution? Well, I think I think the biggest superpower of architecture is to, to be influential. Because that, that's really, um, you know, in terms of holding power, I don't think we do hold power. Um, but to be able to influence um, the way people think so that they might, if they are in power, make decisions uh, in a much broader, well-considered, informed way is really, I think, where we're going. So, you know, the, I think the last century thing about being the godlike architect, mm. my way, the highways, I hope it's dead because, um, or it's in its last splutters, because I think, you know, the reality now of how we make buildings is that there's a lot of people involved in it and a lot of people influence mm. how we think about it and what it needs to do and what it needs to mean. Uh, right down to how it's made and who's looking after it afterwards and we have a role to play in that which is great but the 
the co-design process within that, um, the collaborative process through those things, I think are really important. And um, uh, we can't exist as a silo within mm. practice or in the institutions either, I think. Yeah, I think that's... Um yeah, I completely agree with that. I think it's part of this shift among those many shifts you talk about. And some of these are about architectural movements. Some of these are about the state of the world. Like you mentioned, the fragility and uncertainty that students start to respond to. Yeah. But, but I particularly relate to that move from the idea of the architect as auteur and creator and expressor of things mm. to a process that's much more like a process of revelation, yeah. where in collaboration with people you reveal stories and inspirations and narratives and you orchestrate and if you look at the way that that creative funnel widens over time you go from Mies and Corb as the single pen mm. to the sorts of processes you're talking about now that will involve all sorts of traditionally non-designers that are that are part of a spectrum of people creating and bringing that building into um into reality yeah you know yeah for sure for sure I think um Probably one of the more current experiences is we're doing a lot of work for New South Wales Health, big hospitals, mm -hmm. big hospital buildings, and they've really embraced the idea. Like they overtly want to know about designing with country. How do we embed this? It's actually part of our planning process now in New South Wales. So um, you have to demonstrate that during the, the planning pathway, how you're engaging. But um, there's a couple of hospitals there where uh, it's it, what it's meant is we've had access to community on through through the uh, Department of Health. We're able to like have really big, bold conversations and what matters to that community gets drawn out. And this will be in your very early stakeholder engagement and briefing yeah. like before you might take a pen to paper. Always. Yeah, always, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it continues all the way through. Um, so at one point it flips from the, I guess, design intentions, ambitions into the economic ones. Yeah. And where can value be added with uh, you know, supply chains, for example, and who's how do these things keep maintaining um, themselves as places of culture, mm. or settings for culture? So, um, and that's been really rewarding. Uh, but it, it took it needed champions within that space to make it happen, um, and you know, we just got to keep demonstrating it one project at a time that these things are possible. And I guess when I look over this side of the ditch, I think what's happening here is just feels like it's a hundred years in front of us in terms of um, thinking about um, Maori and Pakeha traditions in space, but also ensuring uh, the two are present. Mm -hmm. uh, well, that, that's how it appears to us on you know, mm -hmm. the side of the ditch, because it feels like it's understood that that must happen here. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, certainly it still feels a little bit optional in Australia. Um, in certain states, it's well supported, like New South Wales. Yep. Um, Queensland, where I'm based, not so much. Um, Northern Territory very much supported. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a real hit and miss sort mm. of thing. So it's not not in any way comprehensive within the national psyche. Yeah, mm. I think it's still. You know, we we have a lot of work to do still. So yeah. <laughs> um, I think there's um, acknowledgement um, from. Well, I, I think at a, a kind of a council level, perhaps that you know that should be, say the Tiaranga principles may, maybe, for example, should be used as a um, as a guideline for um, 
projects of a certain scale, but you know the uptake of them will depend on uh, ultimately the um, design teams involved and um, uh, the clients as well. I mean, there is more pressure there, yeah. but you know we, we still have work to do. There are, you know, Green Star recognises that kind of consultation process. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's it's important to recognise that iwi or tribes are sometimes um, really significant clients, landowners, and developers mm-hmm. themselves, mm-hmm. and the treaty, which which you know for for all of the complexity mm. is a kind of document that certainly NZIA and others, you know, it does give some tailwind. Mm. Um, yeah, it's also traditional for the Kiwi uh, insecurity to answer that, no, no, you're further ahead. Like, <laughs> I'm sure we're kind of about neck and neck. Yeah. I've done one project over there in, in, in the Australian context and um, it's easy to see the similarities. I, th- I expect it takes a lot more time to see the differences. Yeah. That's, that was my very small experience of, of co-design processes on both sides of the ditch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I don't, I don't, it's not certainly co-design and collaboration. It, I think the words get thrown around a bit, mm-hmm. but when you scratch the surface, I think it's um, in Australia, uh, it's still finding its feet. Mm-hmm. Um, like one of our tenets in BBN is uh, collective creativity to design a better future. And what it means within the studio is that um, not just as a team are we sort of thinking through lived experiences equally, because through that everyone's got something to offer in their own story. But when we're sitting in a room with engineers and consultants and client group, we're looking at everyone as having a story, life story to, to or a life experience to influence what it is we're talking about. So it's much more relational mm-hmm. is the intent. Um, and some projects really embrace that and makes it easier. Um, the big project I'm working on at the moment, the new National Gallery of Aboriginal Art in Northern Territory in the centre, is absolutely embracing it. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's such a fantastic experience because you come back, everyone is around the table, client side, consultant side, stakeholder side is, um, is part of the process that everyone has skin in the game, so mm-hmm. to speak. Yep. And, um, yeah, you come away from those meetings inspired mm. and it's a good test you know the ones if you come away from the meeting and you're kind of exhausted then they're probably not quite mm. quite there yet mm. can you talk a little bit more about that particular project when is it um due to be delivered and is it a federal government initiative or a community one so it's uh it's national so it's coming from our federal government but it's also funded by the territory um, and it's of national significance because it will be the first institution dedicated to um, First Nations art. And one of the premises is that the people organising the whole project realised years ago that something like 90% of all the art held in all the art institutions in Australia that was of First Nations content was in storage. So at any point in time, only about 10% was out there. So the premise of this place was to be, or is to be a non-collecting institution. And they've got arrangements with all the state galleries around Australia to have access to those um, storage facilities, which is a really smart move. So a rotating collection? Well, they just have ac- yeah, they just have access to other people's collections, yeah. basically, and can bring it in and you know curate the stories as they need to. Um, the project itself, we issue next Friday um, 50% to 
design, um, which is the equivalent of, say, design development, completing mm -hmm. that. And on the other side of the new year, we'll go into tender docs, so on and so forth. So I think the intent is the contracting is being tendered right now and they're hoping to break ground mid next year. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds That's, incredibly exciting. Yeah. Are you excited about it? Oh, yeah. Like this, this has been a long time coming and, um, you know, we're sitting somewhere between 150 and 200 million that's in that zone. It's a bit rubbery in there still, but um, there's still some funding to land. Um, but it's uh, it's a big deal for Australia. Um, mm. You know, because up until that point, well, up until this gets built, the main cultural institution of Aboriginal art is in Paris. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's done by Jean Nouvel. Oh, <laughs> is that the Musée de Cabre only? That's the one. Right. Yeah. Hmm. And when you say in the centre, do you mean right in the centre? Yep. Okay. <laughs> right in the centre. Wow, that's really exciting. Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, that's uh, yeah, that's my whole life's revolving around that mm. at the moment. So it's got a fantastic team of people involved, and like I said, there's a fantastic group of people on the government side. Everyone's just operating in a really open co-design, genuine sort of. It's just generosity through the whole thing, mm -hmm. and um, yeah, it's great. It's a great experience. Very privileged to have to be part of it. I look forward to seeing that project, Kevin, as it rolls out. Yeah. And yeah. a huge thank you to you for joining us today to talk to us on 76 Small Rooms. Thanks also for being here judging the Student Design Awards. And yeah, good luck with that project and all your other work. Thank you. Thank great you. to be here. Thanks very much. Thanks. Thank you, Ted.